You're listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. is back this week featuring the awesome talents and incisive incisive commentary of Marco. Are you talking about me? Yeah, yeah, you. Oh, okay. That's cool. fine. You're I mean, you're insightful. You're 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 pretty good too. Am I? You're you're okay. I just yeah. let wind you up. I mean, up. I'd, I'd listen to you. I wind you up and let you go. Yeah, um, quite you know. frankly, like Marco's good. Just like said, I'm going to go take a nap. Marco's got it from here. It's really true. Yeah. <laughs> but we have a lot of titles to talk about and yes, this is pretty much our horror episode for this October since we definitely are handling the bulk of the horror oriented type titles of a single show coming out this October. So we'll just, I, you know, assuming I remember to, I'll add the, the, the spookier version of the theme song, uh, <laughs> which we, which I rarely get to pull out. <laughs> That's always fun. Um, thanks to Aaron for making all the music for us once again. But before we get started reviewing all these Blu-rays and DVDs, just a little house cleaning. Once again, please click on those Amazon links on our actual digital noise page if you do or even if you click on the link that's on the side of all the pages you'll see that say the pick of the week uh, it'll bring you to the Amazon buy page if you buy it we get a kickback in fact if you buy anything from Amazon and start from one of those links we get a nice little kickback also please become a subscriber oh I'm begging you I'm down on my hands and knees become a subscriber it is what keeps the site going which is actually quite expensive to manage and run and uh, it is it Honestly, this is like a 90-hour-a-week job for me. It really is. So it would be nice to be able to have the money to go around to get all the things that we need for the site, and it would just make the site that much better. Definitely. Like chairs. We should have chairs to do this. <laughs> no, you must hover. <laughs> Why are we recording all of this on a microphone and you know plugged into your phone? That's it. That's the whole setup. No, it's really low budget. It's a little better than that. Yeah. But we are actually looking towards permanent studio space in the very near future, and that's going to be expensive. So yes, but worth it. Become a subscriber, and you'll get to see our lovely mugs on camera all the time. Hey, you want them to give you money, remember? Yes. I, well, okay, some of our lovely mugs. Others not so lovely. Our better-looking stunt doubles will be standing in for us Yeah, on we could just days. ADR some models. There you go. Oh, just have them flap their lips, and then, you know, we'll just say something behind the scenes. All right. So without any further ado, let's get to the reviews. Ah, speaking of pretty people just flapping their lips. Yeah. <laughs> yes. The first movie we're reviewing is Flatliners. And no, not the recent remake that I last I checked had a 0% on Rotten Tomatoes, for whatever that's worth. <sighs> um, which I, But I've generally heard nothing but terrible things about. Yeah. This is the... Mediocre 1990 uh, sci-fi horror film by Joel Schumacher, which should be enough right there to tell you yeah. this probably won't be fantastic. And it nonetheless had a lot of resonance. People it, really remember this movie extremely it, fondly. It, it's weird. I, I, I'm sure that there are people who feel that way. I I remember seeing this movie in the theater. I remember it being a staple on mm. cable television. Mm-hmm. 
I can't recall anybody who genuinely loves this movie. I've never everybody it. remembers seeing it. Everyone remembers it fondly. I don't think anyone has it on their classics list. Yeah. I, it, I think part of the reason is, despite a memorable collection of actors, no one is particularly good in it. Well, I and mean, no one's given anything particularly good to do. I mean, the idea here is Kiefer Sutherland and the, the rest of the cast, Kiefer Sutherland being the, the, the fulcrum for which all this starts, they're all uh, in school, for medical school, he has set up this experiment that basically I, the idea is to try and track afterlife experiences yeah. by setting you up in a medical situation where you could be killed medically and then... Basically stopping your heart and then shocking you back into life. Yeah, and then trying to record what your experiences yeah. were. And so he manages to, one at a time, uh, talk his fellow medical students, played by Julia Roberts, William Baldwin. What the fuck happened to William Baldwin? Yeah. Oliver Platt, who's one of your few roles you get to see him actually really skinny. Uh, and Kevin Bacon. Skinny-ish. Skinny-ish. I mean, he's, he's skinny-esque. Yeah, he was the chubby guy of this group who all look like, well... They look like 80s heartthrob stars. Yeah. And one at a time in the most irris ridiculously irresponsible. I mean, it's just so preposterous. It's it becomes a be bet. A who, who can stay down longer? Yeah, and which serves no real purpose in the film other than to, to have that that conflict between the characters because you're like, as hard as it is to believe in the first place these characters would even do this experiment, it's a lot harder to believe they would start betting for length. Right. You're like, okay, these are supposed to be basically smart people, not yeah. blithering but they're, idiots. But they're hotheads and they're ambitious and they're competitive, damn it. Uh, and uh, when they do go under, they start discovering that it brings them to traumatizing memories in their past for many of them about things they've done that they know inherently in their heart were deeply wrong things that they've their done. Their sins begin to haunt them. Their sins start literally haunting them. And in Kiefer Sutherland's case, physically yeah. beating the shit out of in, him. In a plot that gets increasingly uh, ludicrous, uh, you said Joel Schumacher. And, and, and let me say one thing about Joel Schumacher. You're right. A lot of his films aren't very... Good or memorable. Uh, he will always be remembered as the guy who put nipples on the bat suit. But true. During Although this Tigerland period, was pretty good. And I'll yeah, hand him that one. He'd been around for a long time. I think he also did a phone booth with Colin Farrell. I was which was, which was his way of stepping back from his big, stylish blockbusters and focusing on a small you know, single location character piece, also bringing back Kiefer Sutherland into the fold. On the last minute, by the way. Yeah, the last yeah, minute. Because they, they had to actually replace the guy completely who had already recorded all his dialogue because yeah. everybody, the, the producers were like, this sounds horrible. And so he's like, yeah. uh, let me call Kiefer. He owes me a favor. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the thing about Joel Schumacher that I've always remembered is that, especially in a movie like Flatliners, and I think this is maybe one of the reasons why people remember it, is because it looks beautiful. It's, it is a pretty film, if not... A, a very on like it's a very shallow film ridiculously but. over pretty at points considering yes. it wants you to believe this is kind of realistic and obviously it feels like Joel Schumacher just saw Suspiria and was like ooh yeah. I want to do that thing with using really different colored lights for every yeah. character and but different he does scenes. that in all sorts of his films yeah you know it was one of his common tactics and you know it's an okay movie you know I'm all for making remaking films that weren't very good to begin with. Yeah. So it's doubly disappointing that the new Flatliners was panned so much it, because this was a very low bar yeah. to surpass, and they failed to do even I mean, that. I think this is an entertaining film, mm -hmm. but at the end it leaves you with a well, I was all right. You yeah. know, you're like you were never going to turn it off, but by the end you're like, well, 
nothing really came together the way you hoped it was going to. And everything kind of feels kind of wishy-washy by the ending yeah. of it. And you're like, it was all right. It, I guess. It's a bunch of, it's a bunch of stars who were going to become bigger stars at their most physically attractive, a gorgeous color palette, some really interestingly staged sequences, but a plot that is ludicrous, silly, characters that are hard to believe or feel sympathetic for. Overacting. And then it just like, kind of... Overacting like crazy. It just kind of ends. And, yeah. You know. And, you know, weirdly... So this is getting a re-release uh, right on the eve of the, the new one Purely for that by reason. Mil- yeah. By Mill Creek Entertainment, who's not known for putting together anything special oh, for there's, their films. There's nothing special and on this. There's nothing. There's, there's no, nothing. But there never has been. They've never put together bonus features no. for Flatliner release. Uh, Flatliner's release. The only thing this has going for it is a steel case, which yeah. some people are obsessive about collecting, but it's not even that attractive of a steel case. No. I mean, it doesn't even have a cup. It's just the logo, and they just pinched a piece of a Michelangelo's, you know, Adam, yeah. uh, God breathing life into Adam, you know, it touching was, the finger. You know, the, like, you know the image. Yeah, it, uh, it's pointless and has nothing to do with the movie. Agreed. Uh, this is, you know, I mean, if you've never seen it, by all means, it's one of those movies you should see it just to be part of the bigger mm-hmm. cultural discussion. But it's there's nothing special about Flyliners. Yeah. All right, next up, going way back here. For the film Ruby, also titled Blood Ruby, going to 1977, uh, directed by Curtis Harrington, who's actually more interesting than the film itself is. He was known yeah. as one of the forerunners of the new queer cinema and did some films that are definitely considered like sort of proto-queer cinema, although this is probably not one of those No, films. it's not. It, the only real connection to it is his, his depiction of... Uh, Piper Laurie's character, who he treats like a Hollywood movie star. Very camp, very sort of diva-esque. I mean, every every scene in this movie is shot through like an Olin Mills filter with that yeah. sort of weird soft lighting that I absolutely can't stand. It, like, yeah, it doesn't work for this. gauzy look. And the idea is we see a little like, like uh, what's the word, prologue in 1935 where uh, this mobster's in love with a young actress playing the young Piper Laurie who uh, she's, he's betrayed by her and by all his partner mobsters who executes him and drops his body in the swamp. He swears vengeance right when she goes into labor with his baby. So it flashed a very short period of the film. 16 years later, she's older. Inexplicably, she has turned this massive old like gangster club into a drive-in theater that somehow she's living in the lap of luxury running, yeah. even though the rest of the place is not running as like a casino or anything else. It's just as giant empty building there's a big um, touch of nora desmond here and, and she's hired all the old mobsters to yeah. you know basically run the concession stand and take yeah. tickets i'm like what the fuck it, it's pretty ludicrous um, she has a 16 year old daughter uh leslie who is uh mute and has been apparently since she was since birth who she treats with a psycho mom level of I love you I hate you I love you I hate you this is Piper Laurie coming right off of Carrie where she's already playing like one of the world's worst moms of all time now she gets to throw a little bit of Carrie's mom with a pinch of Nora Desmond you know this sort of self-deluded woman who thinks you know she could have still been a big star you know it's constantly and, going off about her one album that yeah. she put out. You know? and, and that is really, I think, what director Harrington is interested in. And then eventually he goes, oh, yeah, I have to make a horror movie yeah, about this. Yeah, people have this. to start dying, which I can't just do. camp this up. Is it, like, would have been more interesting if there was ever any mystery, like, okay, we see things are killing these ex-mobsters. Is it is it spectral 
as the movie definitely plays it on the nose that it most definitely is right from the start or they it would have been more interesting he said well maybe it's spectral maybe it's not maybe yeah. there's somebody who's who's ties in deeper in the mystery and the problem is there's no mystery here no. whatsoever it, it just it's also another film trying to piggyback off the success of the exorcist yeah. eventually an exorcist character is brought in to look at the young girl who is clearly being possessed by the spirit of her father there is one kind of outre weird moment where the father has possessed his 16-year-old daughter's body and is kind of coming on to the mother. It doesn't really go anywhere. It just hints at this weird perversion. Uh, this is a film that I can't really recommend. I know that, you know, for completists, they might want to find this out, chalk it down. It hasn't been easy to find before. Uh, the most interesting stuff on here, and there's plenty of it, is commentaries and interviews with director uh, uh, Curtis Harrington, who... This was apparently one of his favorite films of his, but also one of the most miserable experiences he had ever making a film. And he really is one of those guys who is just going to dish the dirt on all the guys that pissed him off during the making of this film. And he, he is an interesting guy. Um, yeah. His conversation with Piper Laurie, they actually apparently spend more time talking about Carrie than they do about this movie. And so, <laughs> uh, yeah. But um, this has the original trailer. It has a uh, another interview, about an hour-long interview with the director. It has two 30-minute sequences that are basically like they're archival interviews, but they kind of track his whole career mm -hmm. uh, as a director, who, like I said, is a minor uh, like figure in in cinema, but definitely holds a important footnote. Yeah. So, like for those who he are, he was like a friend of you know Kenneth Anger and Todd yeah. Brown. Those who are more interested directors. in this director, this has got some some probably valuable supplemental yeah. material. But as a movie, it's definitely a mm, meh. Nah, yeah, it's not. It's certainly not scary. I'll give you not that. at all. Uh, much better. Much better is it stains the sands red. Now I know that is a. It's a very giallo-sounding title, although this is definitely not a giallo-style film at all. This is a very recent release. came out in 2017. That's the third feature from the team of Colin Minahan and Stuart Ortiz, who were originally known as the Vicious Brothers, with Minahan directing, Ortiz producing, and them co-writing together. They, uh, to a surprising amount of popularity, made that movie Grave Encounters, which a lot of people really like. Mm. I always thought it was just okay, but, I mean, it's no worse than the Paranormal Activity films. Um, and then they did an alien invasion movie, Extraterrestrial, not that one by uh, mm. uh, the guy who did Colossal, uh, Nacho Vigalando, another one. Right. I've not seen that one. And now this one, which seems to be clearly the best thing they've touched so far, as it starts with a zombie premise and then actually does something with it we haven't really seen before. Yeah, I, that is the one. Oh, God. When I saw this, my. Now, you know as well as I do, we review a fair number of zombie films. Yeah. And. My eyes always kind of glaze over when I'm looking through the titles. I'm like, oh, a zombie film. So it's always nice when one surprises you and go, okay, you're doing something a little different. This starts off with two people who have the, – the apocalypse has already happened. The zombie yeah. apocalypse has occurred. These two people are getting the hell out of Vegas. They're on their way through the desert to meet some friends at an airfield where they'll get a flight to Mexico. Right. Needless to say, their car breaks down. They get attacked by a zombie, and before long, uh, the actress, and I can't see her it's name Brittany on Brittany Allen. Brittany Allen. Canadian uh, actress. Yeah, she's actually carries this picture and is one of the, for long stretches of the time, she's one of the only people you see. <coughs> she is being chased by your sort of traditional slow zombie. Uh, and after a while, it becomes this comical thing where she's like, 
I don't really have to run that far. Yeah. <laughs> fast. She could just keep walking and she he'll can take keep walking. As long as she, she like gets breaks. ahead of him for a bit yeah. and she can take a break. And it's like, she's wandering through the desert and the zombie who after a while she anthropomorphizes. Yeah. It's literally just her and the zombie. It's the only one the she can talk to this film. She's having conversations with this thing as it's chasing after her. She's nicknamed smalls as yeah. in having a small dick. Um, and who actually, uh, Juan Red, uh, Reed, Reedinger, I think I'm pronouncing his name right, mm-hmm. who plays the zombie, is actually pretty good here yeah. as well. You never thought – this is like next to Bub in Day of the Dead. Yeah. It's really the only notable zombie performance I can think of. He, he adds a little bit of layers and he has the challenge of, you know, you know that is not what the zombie is doing or thinking. It's not thinking anything really. Yeah. Yet – it works as we see it. We can understand how she projects those things onto him. And it's a character piece about her, her character Molly, yeah. as, as we see. I mean, she's like a cokehead and, and yeah. it looks like she's probably a stripper or she's something. Made some she's, bad choices she's made some bad choices and is hanging out with some bad dudes. And like along the way, she's confronting the fact she's she was a mom who gave her – basically forced her mom to take care – her mom her to take care of – her sister to take yeah. care of her daughter. She just basically abandoned her child yeah. uh, and dealing with all the, her – her mistakes and those mistakes end up being what gives her the strength to go, to go on to be like, I don't want to be that person anymore. I want to, I want to do the right thing. If I'm going to make it through this, I'll do the right thing. And it is an interesting journey. Certainly something like this could have really dragged, but it says something to the strength of the, the lead actress here that it doesn't. No, Uh, she carries the picture. It's fun to watch. And she does. She like, Despite you know, say the good zombie performance, it's the strength of her performance. That Absolutely, this thing, and I had fun with it. I had fun too. I think it actually at ninety minutes it goes on a little bit long. There is a moment uh, towards the end of the second act where I thought it was about to end, and I was really enjoying the story they were telling there. I thought it would have been more poignant and impactful. But then I realized, oh wait, there's another thirty minutes mm-hmm. of this, and they tack on this third act sort of re- hero redemption arc for that character, right. which is the one part of the film that felt kind of predictable to me. Yeah. Uh, but other than that, you know, I- I'll give them credit for trying to take a-, a very simple premise on a very low budget and managing to squeeze a lot of juice out of, on pa- on paper, it could have been ludicrous, but... Thanks to Brittany Lee Allen, uh, she really does make that performance work. And there's a few extra features. There's like ten and a half minute behind the mm-hmm. scene with onset footage and interviews with the star and filmmakers. Uh, there's a uh, on the set three and a half minute uh, parody of a showbiz newsreel from the 1930s. That's about the yeah. what the here's Brittany on Allen on the set yeah. getting ready for her close up. It's that kind of thing, which is. Cute, but thank God it didn't go longer than the three minutes. Yeah, it's one of those things like, oh, I have a fun idea for a bonus feature yeah. thing. So you're like, okay, fine. That's that's whatever. But yeah, I, overall, I do recommend this one. I think yeah. it's fun. Now, we're going to go way back to a, uh, a, a kind of a classic in yeah. terms of like hardcore horror fans. And certainly the big shot across the bow for Italian director Lucio Fulci, who has go, went on after this to do a lot of much better known uh, horror movies like Zombie with no E, which was considered to be in Italy the sequel to Dawn right. of the Dead. Um, great movie if you've never seen it. There's a scene where a zombie fights a great white shark, which has to be seen to be believed. Uh, he did the wonderful The Beyond, which I still think is the best Lovecraft, one of the best Lovecraftian movies ever made. Um, and then uh, City of the Living Dead, or also known as Gates of Hell, which has the most vomit-inducing gore scenes of any movie I've ever seen in my entire life, but they're incredibly well done. you got to yeah. give them credit. Uh, this one is was 
one of the reasons this was kind of a big breakout film with him is like one of the first films he started really doing a lot of gore in his movies because he'd already done a lot of the Polizia type things yeah. and lesser giallo, but this was like him developing a style. Um, and it's an odd little film yeah. to be sure because it doesn't resemble any other giallo. For one thing, it doesn't take place in a city. It takes no. place in a really rural village area. Yeah, and that, I think, is actually its strength. Uh, this is a small, very conservative, very Catholic part of Italy, and uh, some children oh, start to Did I say the name of it? Uh, Don't Torture a Duckling. Yes, we forgot Sorry, to mention I the I forgot title. to mention the name. Don't Torture a Duckling. Awkward name. In this Awkward case, name. duckling referring to actually children. Yeah. Because the but also Giallo needed animal names in the title Yeah, somewhere. that was a weird thing for a yeah. long time. Um, so we got to put an animal in there somewhere. Yeah, there's a, in this village a bunch of little children who are no, by no means ever presented as all oh, innocent little, pure innocence little children. Yeah. They're actually kind of little monsters. They're horny little bastards. Um, are being murdered horribly by the killer, which is also unusual usual for giallo yeah it's not really a film that preys on women sexually although there is a very traumatic scene where a woman mm -hmm. is attacked but not because she is a target or, or a typical victim because she is a suspect in the death of these children you have a reporter who comes into town he hooks up with another potential suspect uh, a young woman who is from the area but has left and come back and has some worldly ways about her uh, you know, he, as the reporter, as is typical of Jallo, you have a guy who is not a policeman, but goes, you know what? I'm going to investigate this myself. That's pretty normal. Cops and never solve anything. They in the never movies. solve shit. <laughs> and so he goes and leads this investigation, and there's a lot of red herrings. There's a lot of potential suspects. And as we eliminate them, we get closer to the end of the plot. You really start to see that Fulcho has, Fulci has kind of laid out some themes. Uh, he's not known for plot. But as far as plot goes, this is relatively relatively tight for a giallo. Mm. Uh, and it has a lot of thematic resonance. Uh, and even symbolically with this uh, pristine, concrete, you know, modern uh, highway system cutting through this tiny little provincial village. This is really a movie that is attacking provincialism and conservative small town values. And it's also attacking um, religion, which is not yeah. uncommon at all for Giallo. No, not um, at all. Although maybe not as overtly as this one does, where it really is pointing a finger at faith and, and, and people who act on belief with unthinking, and which mm -hmm. of course translates to Catholicism because... It's an Italian film. Absolutely. Um, but this is, it's an interesting film. And certainly when it does get, choose to be gory, which isn't on the level of his other better known films, no. when it does, it's pretty bloody. It's pretty yeah. nasty stuff. And it, although it's mostly at the end, like I yeah. said, the, the one most violent kind of scene is when uh, a character is attacked by the villagers. And we see these small town people uh, who, through superstition, assume this one, this witch character is actually the person who's committing these murders and there's yeah and they 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 attack her and brutalize her in, really in a horrible way not in a gory way but yeah the the sexual intent the intensity of it is very uncomfortable um as well as maybe not like brutal but triggering certainly for i imagine anybody who's ever lost a child there's very like graphic sequences of dead children yeah. where you're just like, Oh God, there's one at one who's been drowned. That was like, Oh fuck. Yeah. That's nasty. <laughs> um, but all right. So I think overall, I think this is enjoyable. It's certainly a very convoluted plot, sure. uh, but it does leave you guessing the whole time yeah. as to what's going on. And it's odd in that 
it takes quite a while before you realize who the protagonists of this movie even are. It's like not till well into the second act that I had any idea who the two main characters were yeah, supposed to be. Yeah, that is a weakness of the film, potentially. Uh, but, you know, the, it gets the job done. As in, as in so many Arrow releases, the real star of this film are the special features. And there's a lot of stuff here to chew on. Yes, uh, there's an audio commentary by a Fulci biographer, Stephen Thrower, with lots of looking at the biographical background of all the participants. There's a conversation about the film's themes. Uh, there is Giallo a la Campagna, which is 30 minutes with a Giallo expert, Mikael J. Coven, in a video conversation covering the genre in general and this film in particular. I particularly um, recommend that feature, by the way. Well, it's the one very I, good. The one I particularly recommend is Hell is Already in Us, which is a 20 and a half minute video essay by Kat Ellinger that is uh, talking specifically about the accusations of Fulci of being a misogynist and she finds an interesting angle to argue that I while the films are no question problematic mm -hmm. he, she thinks that was never that his aim was actually quite the opposite yeah. and it's a it's an interesting way of looking at the film yeah, I mean I've heard compelling those. arguments towards Fulci in both directions as mm -hmm. a misogynist and people defending him I'm not going to tell you what to think, but yeah. but you, you know, know it's worth checking out. I feel it's like one it, point of view. If you've ever like, if you feel like you've made up your mind one way or the other, this is actually really important to watch. And in fact, in general, it's kind of fascinating for always looking at things that on their surface might seem one way aren't necessarily. <laughs> it's like everyone does the long running argument about the final girl and woman in slasher mm -hmm. films, like. Being now, the argument tends towards, no, that's actually extremely feminist, as opposed to what the argument was forever, that it was incredibly mm -hmm. misogynist. So these things do change based on perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, there is a 1988 audio interviews Lucio Fulci remembers that comes clocks in at about at two parts at about 33 and a half minutes. Uh, and then there's a bunch of cast and crew interviews so, and an insert booklet. So mm -hmm. it's actually a very solid package for a film that if you do consider yourself a big fan of Giallo, this is one of those films you kind of have to get around to sooner or later. Yeah, it's definitely on the list of must-see Giallo. What surprised me a lot that I liked it as much as I did, and maybe because it was just there's no other Giallo that I'm aware of that's even like this at all, mm -hmm. is The Suspicious Death of a Minor, also mm -hmm. an Arrow film, 1975, and it's about the only Italian, or like, giallo polizia comedy I've ever seen. Yeah, that, that sums it up pretty well. And, you know, that makes it interesting, but also those weirdly shifting tones make it a really hard... It, it, it's not hard to recommend. You just need to let people know that, hey, you, you like Argento and stuff like that. This is not that. No. You know, you want Euro trash, you know, Italo crime cinema... This is kind of that. Yeah, it's more you know, that. But you also have some slapstick humor and car yeah. chases and like pratfalls and shit. Yeah, they've with got, like a creepy story. They've got like the main character who's like, it takes, it's not till almost halfway through the film that they revealed that he's actually a police detective. Yeah, see, like I wasn't even going to go in there but, because that's one of the only spoilers in this movie, really. But like, you're like, oh, okay, so he's just this guy who's following on up on this shit and is kind of a badass and kind of like a, a like smartest guy in the room type guy. Yeah. And but like, also kind of sleazy. He's like, I guess we should delve a little bit into this yeah. plot. What's where, the plot? You know, the plot, such as it is. And again, if you know anything about Jalo, the plot is sometimes the least interesting aspect of the movie. It's just a way to get the movie started. Uh, there are there's a woman who is being chased um, and and is viciously murdered. This opens up a police investigation. A man who had met her briefly, uh, played by Claudio Casanelli. 
seems oddly interested in what happened to this young girl whom he knows nothing about and whom we saw like trying to hit on and grab her ass and stuff. Yeah, you're like, great. This guy feels like a minor character yeah, in a giallo like, film, right? You know, you seem like a pervy guy. Why are you suddenly interested in this case? Uh, and so he starts following the clues and he hooks up with a, a local thief, goes, hey, I need you to help me get some information. Let's go steal some whore's money. This guy's... <laughs> This guy's policing method is literally to go purse snatch from prostitutes, take all of the money they have, yeah. go through their stuff in the hopes that he is going to find some kind of written phone number or something that will lead him to this uh, little gang of like a uh, child sex traffickers. I mean, that's what kind of makes him interesting as a character, though, where I really was fascinated by him is that, yeah, he's completely amoral. Yeah. But he is genuinely like, I'm going to solve this fucking yeah. case. I, Even if is, I have to, no matter how many whores I have to sleep with. I know, I know how bad a guy I am, but that's the bar but right I don't there. Care. Anybody no, lower than that, they're going it, down. To, to give you an idea of how scuzzy this guy is, and I think it's just typical sort of exploitation cinema is through a, this long, complicated chain of events. He finally gets one of these underage prostitutes to come to his room to meet him under an assumed identity. She walks in. He knows she's 16. Fortunately, the woman playing the role is obviously not obviously underage not. Yeah. at all. Yeah. Uh, she walks into the room and immediately just takes her top off. He kind of gives her a sort of a praising look and goes, mm-hmm, yeah. But you can put that back on now. I really just want to ask you some questions. No, my, I'm like, you could have stopped her before she took off her top. This is how scuzzy he is. There's one prostitute who he sleeps with and then gets information from, pays her, and then she realizes that he went into her hiding place for her money and just paid her with their own money. Yes, and you're exactly. like, oh my God, this is like not a very nice guy, but he sure is fun to watch on screen. Yeah, and, but the thing is, then it gets to the final act. And what we will find out is that there's actually a much bigger story involved. You think this is a movie about busting a, a sex trafficking ring, but it ends up with, you know, corruption at the highest levels of government in the finance department and in other areas. And, it, you know, it has this very sort of bitter, bleak ending that is so abrupt. It has a very difficult time with the third act. I thought... It Wait, goes, is it over? It goes from something in the first two acts that definitely feels more, like I said, a, a slapstick comedy mixed with Giallo and a Polizia. But then in the third act, it gets so bleak and it is decides it wants to be important and right. be about like this political corruption and all this stuff that came out of fucking nowhere. Yeah. And I was like, okay. I mean, it's so absurd that it's even happening. It's almost funny in and of itself. Yeah. But There's three good movies in here, but all combined, they don't make a particularly strong movie. It's most interesting. It's mostly interesting as, you know, as this really weird hybrid. That's I, what makes it unique. I found it deeply memorable myself. It's memorable. I, I, I had a fun, fun enough time with this in that way that you remember those total oddball, those oddity films that you're like, yeah. how did this even get made? Who thought but this boy, was a good idea? so eminently watchable nonetheless. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing in this that I found boring or anything. I was no. like, wow, this is like, it's a good watch. And I do in fact recommend it, although of course it's deeply misogynistic as oh, so sure. many, so many films from this period actually are. But it's, you know, you're watching it as like a, a B Italian exploitation cinema. It's one of the better ones I've seen in a while. Yeah. Um, this has an audio commentary. It's got a 43-minute uh, conversation with the writer-director Sergio Martino that was conducted in 2017. 
and then the trailer. So not a lot of extras, but once yeah. again, this is but like good ones. a minor mark on the history of yeah. these type of films, but one that I feel like is definitely worth discovering. Absolutely. All right, so we're not going to talk a lot about this next one because we actually, Marco and I, are both on the highly suspect review for A Ghost Story. Yeah, yeah. So we have discussed this film and its themes and our, our fervent disagreement on whether or not it's a good movie at length. Spoiler, Marco really likes it. I really don't. Um, I get why I think we both get why each other feels the way that yeah, we do. Absolutely. But I doesn't even so, with hearing all your your feelings about it, it and vice versa, it doesn't change the way we feel yeah, about it. The, um the one thing I would reiterate is that this is not a movie for everyone. Yes. That's a, it, that's a common thing to say, but it really is true. If you feel like you really want to watch Casey Affleck in a sheet for uh, a very long feeling 92 minutes saying pretty much nothing for n- the bulk of it and uh, and pretty much nothing happening, then um, this is your movie. I appreciate visual storytelling, and I do appreciate that uh, writer and director David Lowry made this film after having done Pete's Dragon for Disney. Uh, you know, he was at a point in his career where he could have done just about anything, presumably. He chose to do this. He chose to do this small, tiny, non-commercial film. Maybe it works for some people, maybe not for others. But I appreciate the fact that he tried to do that. First off, I it think that's bugs admirable. me that he has the same name as the guy from Camper Von Beethoven and Cracker, okay? <laughs> You're not that guy. Second... His first movie, Ain't Them Body Saints, I actually liked quite a bit, which also starred Casey Affleck. I thought that was and quite Rudy a good Mara. movie. Uh, I was not a big fan of Pete's Dragon. I'm that guy. I thought this is just kind of run of the mill. This I never special. really particularly everybody, wanted to see it. But, everybody else loved it. I was but, you like, know, okay. again, he got sucked into the Disney Hollywood blockbuster machine and came out of it going, I'm going to do Ghost Story next. I'll take your paycheck and I'll put it into the movie into I actually want to do. Something that's interesting. I don't know. It's just it's just not my kind of. It's just it, I. There was some arguments in the horror world recently that kind of launched with movies like uh, It Comes at Night, and now throwing this one into it. And this a few is not a horror movie. That saying this is like art horror that no. only is using the tropes of horror, but is not a horror movie. And there's some argument that this needs its own genre definition, these just, type yeah, of films. Just and I actually like fall on that side. Yeah. I think they feel like they kind of do need their, their I, own. I, think I call is, the mumble horror. This is a supernatural drama. That's all there is. Yeah. You know, th- there was never any attempt to horrify you. This yeah. is not a horror film. I do think it comes a night, comes closer to being a horror film than certainly more than this, Except which is it just never a, comes at night. It, and again, <laughs> once you remove the title from the equation, it's not a bad movie. This Everybody actually got hung is up on the a name. ghost story. I this is a genuine ghost least, story. So he doesn't pull a that. bait and switch there. No. Uh, I, the, my favorite moment in this whole thing is when the ghost who lives next door has like a, a patterned bed sheet on, which, yeah, brought, which, cute. which brought a sort of mundaneness to the proceedings that, that was kind of funny. But anyway. This is a visual tone poem about love and loss featuring a ghost dealing with the past and his own legacy and forced to live through eternity. You're either going to buy this ride or not. That's cool. I respect it either way. In um, close. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I'm just going to say like, uh, yeah, I didn't. I'm, but I'm, and I'm weird because sometimes these type of movies I really love sure. and other times I'm like, eh, yeah. it feels very Malicky. I, I, it does have that Malick sort of uh, ser- take me seriously type movie. And some people will find that pretentious. I should point out that, A few weeks ago, I was at a bar talking to somebody, and he mentioned that A Ghost Story was the fourth worst movie he had ever seen in his life. I've overheard that exact same conversation. And I said, really? And I said, and he's like, I used to have three, but now I have four. 
and Ghost Story is the fourth one. I'm thinking. Is this Jacob? Uh, no. Oh. Maybe, maybe it is. Okay. I don't remember. Don't remember the guy's name right now. Uh, but either way, I thought, you know, it couldn't have been that bad because it wasn't bad enough to knock in one of the top three off. Right. It, you know, you just added it on. And also. Did he say what the other three were? He did. And, and I can't remember them all because this was several beers ago. <laughs> uh, I, I seem to recall one of them was something like Battlefield Earth. That's pretty bad. You know, maybe like, I think maybe when well, maybe the female Ghostbusters, I don't remember. But it's it was all that stuff bad. that was mainstream. Very well known films that are just sort of universally acknowledged as bad, or everybody admits that they got a mixed reception. Yeah. So I thought, you know, if this is the fourth worst movie you've ever seen in your life, you don't watch a lot of you movies. Clearly, need because to watch I them. see worse movies than this every week. That that much is is accurate for me as well. Uh, so the Blu-ray here comes with the audio commentary with the director, the cinematographer, which I will definitely take my hat off to. The cinematography it's is gorgeous film. here. The production designer and the composer. There is a 30-and-a-half-minute uh, piece called A Ghost Story and the Inevitable Passing of Time, which is uh, – I, I did not watch – did you watch this? I watched some of it. That, that I admit, was kind of hard to watch, but – uh, this is one of those movies where I think it's more interesting to watch it than hear people talk about well, yeah, it. Yeah, they, they do it like in an arty style itself as a round table campfire ghost story swap, yeah. which is like with the cast and crew, which I mean, I'm all for people being experimental with bonus yeah. features like that, but I don't know, whatever. There's a look specifically at the composer and there's a one deleted scene yeah. and that's it. So yeah. you already Score know. was if, quite good on this. You already know if you want to see this or not. Absolutely. Um, and you already know if you want to see this. And well, chances you are you seen, already have. You would have seen it by now. Our next one is Arrow's re-release of the 1977 Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, no. Nin uh, 1984 uh, film, Children of the Corn, the adaptation of the short story by Stephen King that first published in 1977 in Penthouse Magazine. Um, I, you know, for the big horror guy I have, never seen this movie really? before oh. this. Weirdly, I even know the guy who uh, who played Malachi. He yeah. he lives in, uh, in L.A., but he comes here all the time. He's good friends with a friend of mine. Mm. And so it's like one of those guys, yeah, every time I see him, he's like, you see Children of the Corn yet? I'm like, no. <laughs> so now when I actually see him, I'll be able to say, okay, I actually finally yeah. saw Children of the Corn. And sure enough, Upon finally visiting this movie, it is every bit as mediocre as I always heard it, it was. It is absolutely mediocre with, uh, with who are the stars? It's, uh, Linda Blair. Not Linda Blair. Not Linda Blair. Not Linda not Hamilton. Linda Hamilton. Who deserves better at this who point. Who deserves better career. for sure. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it, it you can kind of see the bones of the original short story. It's a couple who break down. They Cars are always breaking down in these weird small towns. They come across this small town that is eerily devoid of adults. Uh, and all they're of like, the oh, wait, we're in that Star Trek episode. Yeah, all of the adults are gone. They are all, the town is entirely run by children who all worship, uh, who follow this preacher, Malachi. And all of the kids. Well, Malachi's not even the one they follow. He's like the heavy. Oh, I'm sorry, not Malachi. Malachi is, yeah, Malachi's the muscle. Isaac is the guy. Isaac the, the is the, yeah. And uh, they basically. You know, he's the preacher and they worship something, some entity yeah, called... He who he, walks behind the road. Which is the coolest sounding thing in the movie. But, you know, Speaking that's like a cool name... 
But you're just a thing in the corn somewhere. Yeah, it's, a, it's a corn farming town, so there's corn fucking fields everywhere. Lots and so of corn. they developed this mythology about this thing there that led them, yeah. for real or not, to murder all the adults right. there. Because, and at, you know, like by the age of 13, you die, and, and you die, like, sort of in oh, God's I thought was, grace. I thought it was 19. Or 19, 19, you're right. Yeah. You know. Um, uh, yeah, that you, you die by being sacrificed to the, 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 the he who walks aforementioned the he and, who's walking. And anyone who comes into the town who's an adult is immediately bumped off. I don't know. This is just... It's just dumb. Yeah. Like, there's nothing about this that really pops at no. all. I can't believe it sponsored... It, it featured so oh, many sequels. So... So rarely has so little produced so much. Yes. I mean, there's what, like 10 Children of the Fucking Corn? I mean, there's a people lot. People love TV these corn movies. As well. Yeah, they are corny. I'll hand them that. Uh, this original one directed by Fritz Kirsch. Uh, who is best known for this one in a movie called Tough Turf. I vaguely remember Tough Turf. Uh, yeah, vaguely. He did Gore, if you remember G.O.R. Oh, yeah, you remember gore. that one? And then, oh my God, this can't be an adaptation of The Stranger, is it? No, it is not. It is a kickboxing Martial movie. arts action film. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah, I was like, he did an adaptation of The Stranger? Yeah, Jesus. With, nope, nope. Although I would totally watch you know, a Camus martial arts. kickboxing I would epic. totally watch that if that was the case. <laughs> yeah, there's just not much to recommend here. I wish yeah. there was. I've been like, it's one of those films I always hope when I get, when I finally get to it, I'll be like, oh, man, I, that was great. I suspect that this was a movie that people are fond of it because it was on TV a lot. When they were a little when kid. When they were kids. Yeah. And to see all these creepy little kids. And there's some genuinely creepy little kids in this. To see these creepy kids killing adults, that's pretty freaky. Uh, and, you know, uh, as far as the special features goes, there's tons of them. Lots of interviews, oh, commentary. This is a very loaded disc. Uh, one of the more interesting aspects is how director Kirsch talks about, you know, how they had very little money and very little time uh, to create the effects for uh, He Who Walks Behind the Rose. And that's kind of effective on a very low-budget scale. It's mostly like wind and earth moving and stalks of corn being pulled by shoestrings and yeah. our fishing line. Really bad CG, early They're, CG effects. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's even counts as CG. It's just They're bad compositing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's just rotoscoping and bad bad animation but it is what it is uh if this is something that you loved as a kid or you're just curious you might want to check it out i myself i was reminded again by how mediocre it was and, and don't feel the need to go back to any of the children there are people of the who scenes. love it it's uh this is following up on the earlier anchor bay release which had a lot of extras and i believe there a lot of them are here, ported over but there's a lot of new ones specifically for this one as well uh which is you know i mean that's that's a, that's such an arrow thing to do so yeah um if this is a movie that you are excited about it even has uh the almost 20 minute first short film adaptation of the Stephen King story that came out a year before this Which I found almost crow. Yeah, it's not I, good. I, I just, I, 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 mean, I thought for King, like 10 minutes. If you're a King completist, this is as complete as this, as uh, yeah. this thing will ever get. So, um, And I think, you know, the only interesting, well, not the only, but I, the most interesting thing that I found in these special features is the, uh, there's an interview with the uh, writer uh, who, you know, didn't really go on to do much of any great note, but he got the gig over Stephen King, and all the producers didn't like King's script. And yeah. so he had to get chewed out by Stephen King going, you don't understand storytelling. You don't understand how to tell this story. 
And he's like, yeah, but so I had the uncomfortable job of telling Stephen King I was rewriting his script. Yeah, and you know, to be fair, like Stephen King's script, actual screenplays for horror movies have not traditionally yeah. been fantastic. So he, he's really good at certain things, but screenplay writing is not always his strength. You put him in charge, and you get maximum overdrive. And, and sure, enough, which is which I will give credit is one of those movies that's it's a bad movie, but man, it's, it's fun. fun to watch. It's, this is not fun to watch. No, it's not. It's yeah. boring. And notably, Stephen King appears. There's nowhere in these bonus yeah. features. All right. Something I thought was a lot better than this for like campy, silly uh-huh. horror, but that does kind of depend. And this is weird on you having watched more yeah. of the, the previous sequels uh, in the Child's Play series. Cause this one is making no allowances for newcomers to the series. This is for fans. Yeah. This is the new one. The seventh installment in the franchise called Cult of Chucky, which by the way, written and directed by Don Mancini, who has written every single installment yep. of the Child's Play series. This is his baby. And just at the past couple has he started taking off as the director. And honestly, I'll say this is one of these series that I didn't really care for the originals. Nah. Like the first three or so I was like, Whatever, it's just a stupid slasher movie with a because with a doll because people think dolls are scary. I mean, Brad Dorif is always great and he's yeah. great at the one-liners, but whatever. It wasn't until they decided to go a little bit meta with these things yeah. that they started to become a lot of fun. Uh, where they were like, "Look, this is ridiculous. Let's just go fucking full ridiculous." Of uh, bringing in Jennifer Tilly first right. playing like a gangster mall type character that becomes a doll in and of herself, and then appearing again in a later movie as, as Jennifer, Jennifer Tilly, Tilly, who all. Also gets taken over by the evil spirits. This new one uh, stars Brad Dorf's daughter, Fiona Dorf, who, yeah. if you watch um, Max Landis's adaptation of uh, what's that Douglas Adams thing, Dirk Gently's, which oh, has okay. been playing lately, which is terrific. She plays a major role in there, as good as as well. She was in the last movie. She's returning to this one, where basically Chucky set it up so it looked like she had killed all these people that Chucky did. So she's now in an insane asylum. Uh, as well, returning is adult. Andy Barclay, who is indeed the kid from the original film, only played once by another actor. I think it was in mm-hmm. Child's Play 2. They brought in someone else. But for the, all the rest of these, whenever Andy's in one, it's the kid from the first one, all grown up. He's got the original Chucky's head, which he keeps in a safe and, like, fucks with sometimes. Just tortures yeah. for fun. Makes himself feel better. Like, fuck you. You're not doing anything. What he doesn't know is Chucky has figured out a way to expand his franchise, as yes. it were. And as... We focus a, spent a lot more time focusing on uh, Fiona's character, Nika, in the uh, mental institution where she's been for for a while and introducing a bunch of new characters. It has a weirdly sort of Nightmare on Elm Street 3 vibe with yeah, it I get that. going on. And these characters all have their own little insanities and are all interesting in their own right. And it ends up being kind of a mystery as, after a while, you, people are starting to get killed off. And you're not entirely sure at first... If it's if Chucky has somehow returned because you're seeing his head in this other place, mm-hmm. or if there's somebody who's just obsessed with Chucky who's killing these people, and the film comes to some pretty funny and bizarre solutions to get to where it needs to be. Yeah. I mean, this is camp. I had fun with camp this. comedy horror. It's stupid, but it's I had stupid. fun with it. It is dumb. It knows it's stupid, and that give, makes it kind of smart. But you're right. I think the the critical factor here is that this film. Does not even pretend. Come, come on, it's seven in. The only reason you are watching a Chucky movie is because you are committed to this series. I 
stopped watching this after the first. I mean, I thought it was pretty dumb even as a child. Yeah. Uh, seeing that original Chucky. Well, you but he was you memorable. weren't a child. Come on. I was a child. <laughs> you were like 20-something when these wait, originally came wait, out. Wait, when, when did the original Chucky come out? Because I, I think you're I'm wrong. I'm reasonably sure you were you were a full-grown adult by the, you, you, when I, this I came out. I think I do not agree. Uh, I remember uh, seeing this as a young, young man, if not an older child. I'm trying to see. I'm trying to link on it, and I'm not even sure where the first one is here. That, yeah, that, that, let's let's see I here. Just Child's Play was 1988. You were not I was a in child. junior high. Yeah, come on. I was in junior... I didn't graduate high school till 92. All right, fair So enough. I would have been like a... I would have been... You may have been childish, but you were not really a child. Right, but you know, I the mean, thing is... the law, you were. At by 13 mm-hmm. or 14, you know, I'd already seen plenty of horror, and... Chucky was obviously pretty silly. Yeah. And, so and, you could have taken it seriously. But that's kind of why, like I said, the series yeah. ended up working because it goes, this is dumb. We can't yeah. keep doing just remakes of the first movie. We have to find a new way of selling right. this stuff. It's a brand. Don, the, the writer, direct, later director, Don Mancini, realized this is the brand. Everyone knows the brand. Yeah. But I can't keep remaking it because nobody will care. It'll kill the brand. So what do I do? I kind of reinvent it. Uh, with being a comedy horror series, which is exactly what they did. And since he did, they've been progressively better. I think each one of the films since they basically introduced Tilly's character has been better than the one before it. And this is my favorite of all the Chucky films. But like I said, deeply invested in the previous storylines and you're going to feel like you're missing a lot if you haven't seen those I was lost for a little bit. They do kind of give you a little backstory here and there, but yeah. It was pretty clear that this is made for fans who already know this story. Uh, there's five and a half minutes of deleted scenes. There's uh, uh, almost seven minutes called Inside the Insanity of Cult of Ch- uh, Chucky, which looks at the film's legacy and the audience attraction. Uh, there's God, Good Guy Gone Bad, the incarnations of Chucky that look like how the doll is made and operated. There's the dollhouse where a bunch of the cast and crew veterans from this and other films talk about their work throughout the franchise's history. And then there's an audio commentary by Dan Mancini, the head puppeteer uh where they go through the basically the character's history i I will say this about the chucky franchise in its defense i can't think of any horror franchise (laughs) more committed to practical effects and animatronics after seven or eight you know sequels you think they would have finally said you know what we could save a ton of money and time if we just made chucky cg and they're like nope We're going to have a puppet. We're going to have an animatronic. We're going to have six people taking five hours to make Chucky to do like 30 seconds of action. And if they did do a CG one, that would be the end of the franchise. And that would kill it. Right there. And they're smart enough to know that who their fan base is. I think they are. All right. So our next film going in a very different direction, yet very different. still consider to have very strong horror elements to yeah. it, is the very, like, you know, if you're going to go with the stretch of calling it art horror, which it's not quite there, but getting there is the it's movie. It's more of a thriller in my Lady mind. Lady Macbeth. And this is not based on Macbeth. No. This is based on a novel called Lady Macbeth of the Matense District. Um, and apparently not even the first adaptation of that story. No, I believe it's a Russian novel. Yes. Uh, now, I actually reviewed this on Highly Suspect Reviews, and I was the I think I was the only one in our crowd that really liked this a lot. Oh, good for you, because if you had said otherwise, I would have just looked at you funny. This is actually my pick of the week. Wow. This is really smart and really clever. Uh, yes, it does have some art house elements. It has some very static uh, compositions and long takes, but that really goes, I think, to build some of the tension and dread that ultimately leads to tragedy. It's the story of Catherine, a young woman played wonderfully by Florence Pugh, 
Uh, she's <coughs> trapped in a loveless marriage. She's forced to marry a man older than her. She has this domineering asshole of a husband, an even worse uh, uh, father-in-law. And she's not allowed to leave the ground. She's not allowed to do anything. Uh, she's basically a woman who is trapped, as most women would, by class and by her sex at a period of time when, you know, there really weren't many options for a woman in her position. No. She could get married, and that was it, and have children, and that was all she was expected to do. Uh, but Catherine, as we find out, has more ambitions. She's young. She wants to live life. Uh, her husband, who resents her and is clearly impotent or some has some kind of weird perversion and sexually humiliates her regularly, uh, she lashes out at everybody, starts a passionate, wild affair with a horrible, terrible person. Yeah, I mean, that literally starts out as rape. Yeah, and, and who she has caught raping other people. Yet, she is... Enraptured by this, for with this horrible swine of a man, He's she finally escape. experiences, you know, something like pleasure, and begins to discover her own agency, her own power. Because of course, uh, as the lady of the house, she has a lot of power over her servants. Uh, this is a really weird, twisted moral tale of a woman who will do whatever it takes to keep the man she loves, to keep her position, to protect herself. From her horrible, horrible family. But, as, again, I'm not going to spoil anything, but it's, she's a very easy character to empathize with. Mm -hmm. But she goes down a path that eventually you can understand why she makes those decisions, but you cannot endorse those decisions. And, and nor can you, there's a point where you can, like, you no longer empathize with her. Yeah. You're just like, okay, you have really, you have swapped. She crosses drank, a line. You have drank this Kool-Aid, crossed a line, crossed another line, and then cast about to see if she could see any lines in the distance yeah. and took off running But for I think it's also significant. We see her young, innocent, virginal. Yeah. You know, full of energy and life, and then immediately have that snuffed out, sexually humiliated. And I think it's significant that the first time she exerts any power over her servants, when she catches them raping another servant, she punishes them and chastises them in the exact same way, using the exact same words that her husband uses to break her down. I think Catherine's issue is that as a woman of her time, Yes, she had limited options, but she also only had she had very limited models on how to use that power. Oh yeah, I mean she's a very young girl. She's like, this off. is what I learned. This is how I know how to break people down and take control. And then she ultimately becomes even worse than the people who oppressed her. It is a weirdly deeply moral film. Yeah, that does very... not condone her, but it goes. This is where this path leads. It's, it's a dark feminist film yeah. and the line where I'd put up with something like, like, uh, uh, Basmois or, or, yeah. uh, ginger snaps where I'm like, there's definitely those horror elements start playing into it eventually. Although it's like you said, it's more of a thriller than anything else, but it's so dark. You always feel it's right about to become a bloodbath yeah. and you are with her and enjoying watching her take down her <coughs> rivals until that moment comes and you go, Holy shit. 
I can no longer follow you down this path. And that is thanks to the uh, magnificent performance by Florence yeah, Hugh. I can't say Hugh. enough good things about her performance. She's riveting so in this. Uh, she's got a, a hopefully a huge career in front of her. She's This is a tough role to pull off. Mm-hmm. It really is. And she nails it. I never had any question that she was like somebody that we're going to be seeing more from. Absolutely. And, and this alone, this isn't one of those films with faint praise. Like, oh, but she was great. This whole movie, this director, William Oldroyd. This is a really well-made film. Absolutely. Um, all right, so let's move on to The Game Changer, which I am going to call flat out not a very good movie. This oh, is no. our our uh, token martial arts film of the week, because, oh, you know, God. I've always got to throw one of these in here. And this one I was actually kind of excited about, because I'd seen the trailer. I was like, wow, this is a big budget one. Yeah, it's pretty. It's action-packed, and it is definitely both those things. It's just... It's like it took its action cues from Michael Bay films. Well, I wouldn't go quite that far. I mean, far. but, you know, as a period piece Chinese gangster film, it's just preposterous the degree that the, the oh, things yeah. explode in an overly big overly way. Over, it's very operatic. And, you know, I, I'm certainly no expert on Asian cinema or any cinema coming out of China, but... Although you're starting to be, well, making you the, watch so the, many the of them. The one thing that I have gathered, and I think kind of Richard may have tipped me off on this year a while back, is that there is a a, a tolerance for melodrama, so for sort of lurid, overly complicated soap opera plots that can get mixed into these sort of kick-ass action sequences mm-hmm. that for us as Western audiences feel very jarring. But apparently, for Chinese audiences, this is exactly what they want. Like, yes, we want action. We want long, complicated plots. We want pretty people beating the shit out of one another or having affairs right. or backstabbing. But we also want to cry and we want to feel tragedy. They want to see soap operas mixed with action films. Yeah, and I realized what I thought, that weird mix of tones, I realized that's a feature, not a bug of Chinese cinema. And your ability to tolerate that, I think, will really impact how much you enjoy this film. Yeah, uh, although, I mean, I can deal with a lot of that. God knows I watch a lot of these. I just thought this is one that takes the both of those aspects, the soapiness and the action, to such a implausible, ridiculous, yes. over-the-top level that I just kind of checked out at a certain point. It, it was exhausting. It's exhausting. It is. There's no sense of realism to this film. What? Oh, no, it's, it's, you know what? This is like if somebody had taken... Imagine the Club Obi-Wan sequence, from, you know, from, from Temple, Temple of Doom. Doom, and then that's it spills out into the street of Hong Kong, and then it goes on for three hours. Yeah. This is that kind of world. These aren't just gangsters. These are gangsters who are immaculately costumed and art-directed. The scenery is gorgeous. And after a while, you just start going, you know... Is this really two hours and 20 minutes of this shit? This is not... I don't think this is what the 1930s look like. Yeah, I think this they, I is feel a like fever they were, dream of I the 30s. I feel like they were dustier. Yeah, you know, it's like, I don't believe everybody looks so elegant in all of these. And yet, the the level of fighting, the action scenes are fun, especially in the first half, where They're there's a fun. sense of, like, weightlessness to them. Again, it's cartoon action there's almost. fun to a point. But then it gets, after the fifth or sixth one, you go, God, stop there's already. Just, that's the thing, is, like, at first, you're like, oh, that's fun. But that never really becomes terribly inventive. And that's one of the things I look for. If you're going to make a martial arts action-heavy movie... It's always been about, like, the set pieces. And it feels like we're just kind of seeing the same thing over and over yeah. again in this movie. Uh, it, it wants to be all of those things. And, and it has this sort of doom, tragic ending to it that 
just doesn't, to my taste, feel earned. Uh, uh, what's the plot of this thing? Because I don't even. You know, do we need to, to talk honest. about it? It's basically a, a Chinese dissident uh, is put in a prison. He breaks out with the help of a Chinese gangster. That gangster takes him back to his father, who is a powerful crime lord. He adopts this Chinese dissident. Of course, this Chinese dissident turns out that he has a a, a bone to pick with this uh, godfather because this is the guy who brutally uh, put, you know, he assisted the Japanese in putting down these Chinese demonstrations, right. uh, these student demonstrations. So he's secretly trying to find a way to kill him because his former, you know, like communist associates are like, You've, you're on the inside. You've got to take this guy out for us. Right. Meanwhile, he's fallen in love with the man's daughter. The man's adopted son treats him like a, the brother he always oh, wanted. Yeah, the, there's another you know, girl there. That's there's another girl who he him, went but, to yeah. that he was a student with who also went to prison. And now she's dating the, the crime boss. And it's her plan to assassinate it's him. so convoluted. It, and then, of course, it all ends in tragedy. And, and, you know, but there's like weird, silly action scenes like, you know. There's actually one really good one where they're on a on a on a horse and cart, and I'm like, this is really fun. It's really inventive. That's like one of the second or it has scenes to, in the movie, I and mean, then it just stops. Yeah. It just keeps going and going, and it has those moments early on. You're like, that was cool, but yeah, it just runs out of ideas. And in the end, after two hours and twenty minutes, it's like, seriously, that's how you're going to end this fucking thing? Yeah, you're you you think this is the Godfather, don't you? Yeah, you really think this is the Godfather? Like it is said, not the Godfather. Yeah, we're we're going to start with Kate Capshaw doing Anything Goes in Mandarin, and then you know go to Nepal, and then somehow we're going to wind up killing Fredo in the boat. We want that level of emotion. It's a mess of a movie, but it's a gorgeous mess. Uh, you know. Watch it in two or three breaks and just enjoy the eye candy, but I can't really recommend it too highly. All right. Well, our final film today is really, let's face it, an all-time classic. Classic. And that's A Fish Called Wanda. This is one of those movies that, unfortunately, didn't seem to have kept up in the awareness of a younger generation who haven't really discovered it. Um, Either that or they saw Fierce Creatures by accident first and thought that that was going to be the same thing, uh, which was the... Not sequel. They took the exact same cast, writer, director, made another movie with mm-hmm. to- about totally different characters, and it's not all that good. No. Fish Called Wanda is a flat-out comedy masterpiece. Absolutely. Um, and this release is important be- coming out from Arrow because MGM's never been great about spending any money on their Blu-ray releases, generally speaking, yeah. with the exception of somebody who's as big as like Bond or something like that. Right. This the this last release time. looked like shit. It had almost no extra. Fe- it only had a few extra features. This is them, Arrow, spending the money to make this and film make this film look and sound like a comedy classic, like a fish called Wanda, genuinely deserves. Now, so this is a heist comedy film. Uh, it was uh, actually uh, directed by Charles Crichton, which is notable because this guy has been working since the earliest days of cinema. This is his last film. He was an Ealing Street director, so he <laughs> cut his teeth working on those great Ealing comedies, which often had crime elements. Often featuring uh, Alec Guinness, things like Lavender Hill Mob, yeah. uh, you know, uh, uh, Kind Hearts and Coronets, as Man well as, with One Red Shoe. As well as Keystone Cops type of yeah. stuff. And uh, John Cleese wrote this, basically bringing the script to this director who went, this is an Ealing comedy. He's yeah. like, yeah, I know. Like, that was entirely what he intended and entirely why he wanted this guy to direct the and film. And it's why the, part of the reason why the film feels timeless. It does, it's not shot like an 80s film. Flatliners looks like it came out of the 1980s. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of 80s films, for good or bad, you see them, you know exactly what era you're in. Apart from a 
some of costume choices and particularly the soundtrack, there's nothing in this film that feels particularly dated. Now, the plot as it is, Jamie Lee Curtis plays kind of a comedic and likable femme fatale-ish type mm-hmm. character who is part of a gang. She is teamed up with um, uh, Tom Georgeson, who is kind of the ostensible leader of yeah. the gang, um, with Michael Palin, who is a bad stutterer, animal lover, who nonetheless is really good at being part of a, a, a bank job gang. And Kevin Klein, who's the American oh, they God. brought in, who's like, I guess they said he was ex-CIA, which is well, hard to believe. Well, Otto says he's ex-CIA. Yeah. Exactly. He's a deluded, psychotic... He is one of the great, glorious pricks of cinema. Yeah, absolutely. Like, top ten ever glorious pricks in cinema. Who thinks he's an intellectual, and he is a just drooling idiot. No, But, like, he's just... It's such an incredible, manic performance by Klein. It really ranks among... One of the all-time great comedy performances, this, period. This is... You know that you're talking about a good film when you consider everyone on... Everyone from the director to writer-director John Cleese, I'm sorry, writer and actor John Cleese, uh, the director and the cat, everybody can claim that this was one of their best works. Oh, yeah. This isn't like, oh, this was Cleese's best thing, or this was Cleese. It's like, no, all of you guys this is one of the had all-time moments in this film. Um, and John Cleese comes into it playing Archie Leach, who is a uh, barrister who gets tied into this whole group when one of the, the, the Tom... He's defending George, the, uh, the, who is, the, the ring map. Yeah, who, who, gets, who gets busted because basically Kevin Klein turns and like, makes an anonymous call. Right. Only problem is that his figure was him and Jamie Lee Curtis because she's kind of working with everybody against right. everybody and else. She's trying to do Archie she's to playing, get information about where the she's diamonds are. She's playing all sides against the yeah. And it, you know, that's the thing. Everybody has a romantic relationship with her and they think that she's only hooking up with the other ones because right. to get what she needs to out of them. And the thing that makes this work as well as it does, which is when you watch the extra features, apparently the original ending was actually, oh, she's actually just out for herself. It was so smart to change that because she genuinely falls for this gawky barrister who is like not part of this type of world at all. And you have to remember for most people, this is such a weird part for John Cleese because it's one of the rare times that John Cleese, it's the only time that John Cleese gets to headline a film and play the romantic lead. He was always an ensemble player or playing like just this bizarre cast of characters or like the stuffy, pompous British man, yeah. uh, Mr. Conservative. He's playing the romantic comedy lead. Yeah. And the thing is, Weird. he knows that it's such a bizarre thing. He knows how unusual a figure he cuts as a romantic lead, which is why he's given that character the name Archie Leach, yeah. which is not only a sort of diminutive name and has a spineless creature in its title, but is also the real name of Cary Grant, one of the yeah. most dashing leading men ever. So John Cleese goes... I know. I get the joke. I shouldn't have this role. This should be the Hugh Grant role. Yeah. But he's like, nope, fuck it. I'm going to be it. I'm going to do it. And it wouldn't he's have worked, wonderful it in it. It wouldn't have worked with a super handsome, charming guy. Yeah. I mean, he is pompous. He's stuffy. He He's trapped in a loveless marriage. You know, he's clearly good at his job. But when he meets Wanda, he is just smitten. This is a woman who has excited him in a way that he's never been excited in for years. Uh there's so many good jokes in this. It's hard to, to oh, talk about them without just... You, know, you just want to sit here and quote lines all there, night. There are scenes in this that your stomach hurts from laughing yeah. so, because it just doesn't let up. No. It's like, I mean, and the thing is, this is so... So many people wouldn't get this right today, I think. And, and the director, uh, Crichton, I believe his name, or uh, I, I... 
I mean, he was almost Charles Crichton. Yeah. Charles Crichton. He was in his 70s. He basically hadn't directed a movie in 20 years. Yeah. He'd done some TV work. Like I said, Cleese sought him out because he wanted the Ealing guy. Yeah. And he said in the 60s, they were going to work together on a project. It didn't happen. But John Cleese said, you know what? One day we'll work together. And 20 years later, when he had the clout, he made it happen. Yep. And this guy shoots stuff in a very classic, very restrained way. He allows the actor's space to move within the set to do a lot of physical gags. There's a hilarious moment where uh, the Jamie Lee Curtis character has gone to Archie's house to seduce him thinking that his wife is gone. Yeah. Suddenly Otto shows up because he's so jealous. He can't, even though he knows it's the plan, he can't stand the idea of another man kissing her. And of course the wife shows up. Yeah. And so now you have characters hiding behind doors, sneaking around, lying. It's like, oh no, I just happen to be in the neighborhood. Right. And to see how it, that shot, that series of shots is constructed, it is flawless. And uh, Clee said when he wrote it, he kind of had a storyboard and like, plotted out with models and likewise uh Crichton just generated like this really uh, massive shot list and diagrams mm -hmm. that's how carefully th anybody else now would have just shot that from a hundred different angles and <coughs> just cut it and found it in the editing room this guy constructed it it's like he's going to be here this guy's going to walk here this guy Jamie is he is going to crawl off the couch and move under here while he goes out the door that kind of blocking uh, of actors is rare in a lot of cinema today, and it's a joy to see it done. Yeah. So effort, it's not effortless, but it looks effortless. This disc in and of itself is a masterclass on why comedy films yeah. work and yeah. what makes comedy work. And of course, this being Arrow, there is a ton of extra oh, features yes. here. Commentary by John Cleese, a 48 minute 1988 uh, documentary uh, called John Cleese's First Farewell Performance, um, <laughs> a 15th anniversary re retrospective, which is still from a while back, uh, yeah. that's 30 minutes long called Something Fishy, uh, an appreciation by Vic Pratt, which features a BFI arch archivist talking about the film, uh, interview with Roger Murray Leach, who was uh, the film's production designer, uh, 16 and a half minutes on location, which is played for laughs, mm -hmm. um, a message from John Cleese, which is essential watching, by the way, yeah. which is like a, apparently when this first showed in American theaters, they weren't entirely clear Americans were going to get this movie. Yeah. So they filmed this weird intro with John Cleese, who's right. basically just satirizing himself yeah. and how bizarre it is that he's even playing this character. Uh, that's quite funny um, that he keeps accidentally thinking he's Meryl Streep right. uh, at the time. You know, what are you going to do? Uh, there's 30 minutes of deleted and alternate scenes that also include some Cleese introductions, an image gallery, a trivia ch track. Man, I wish they would bring that back as a standard expected release on every film. I love it when they have the subtitle yeah. trivia track uh, option. I mean, I, I watched almost all of these special features. I, I didn't get to go through the trivia track. Oh, man. But, man, I, this is just so good. There's really, I know that I said that uh, Lady Macbeth is my pick of the week, this is, and I stand by this that. This is my pick of and the I week. And I figured as well, for me, A Fish Called Wanda, that's just a pick of the of the life. You don't, I don't need to distinguish it. That film would stand out in any pile. It's one of the greatest comedies ever made, yeah. period. And, and, and career best work from a lot of people who've done a lot of good work. Agreed. Um, I, I just keep thinking about how... Brilliant Kevin Klein is in this film. The way he, both he and John Cleese hop about like in like crazy acrobats throughout yeah. this film, but with like comic slapstick style and, but just in such a different way based on Klein who their characters so are. He's this 
completely, he's this armpit smelling, psychotic guy who thinks he speaks foreign languages, yeah. but is really just reciting menu items. Oh, dude, the scene when, you know, when, when, oh when uh, um, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis finally just confronts him and oh, tells him about, off about how stupid he actually is, is one of the yeah. funniest monologues ever. Yeah. I know, Otto. I looked it up. uh anyway that brings us to the end of this week's digital noise i want to thank marco for joining me we got through a lot of titles in just over an hour so that's not so bad yeah there's some good ones in there kids uh once again please click on those links buy our stuff through amazon links it helps a lot and become a subscriber in the meantime uh we probably have at least one more maybe even two digital noises before halloween but either way happy halloween guys have a great october drink responsibly all that stuff that grown-ups are supposed to say absolutely be scary be safe stay the hell off my lawn yeah, my, my friend always likes to say instead drive fast take chances <laughs> <laughs> ladies and gentlemen listeners to one of us.net be a subscriber if i could offer you only one tip for the future being a subscriber is it the long-term benefits of being a subscriber at one of us.net have been proven by scientists whereas the rest of my advice has no basis more reliable than my own meandering experience. I will dispense this advice now. Watch TV, but not too much. Remember to cast a wide net of types of shows you watch. Even reality TV may have the occasional gem to offer. Don't feel too bad that you have trouble finding friends that share your interests. You are amazing, and you should love what you love. Sure, in 20 years, you'll look back at your favorite stuff and cringe at some of it, but it will be with an affectionate smile. By the way, I have no doubt that you probably look amazing. Even if you haven't found that person yet, if you believe in yourself, somebody is going to love you. I'm sure anime is great. I don't personally watch a lot of it, although some of our staff certainly does. You'll feel better in realizing that my lack of interest in it isn't me critiquing the quality of anime and affects your love of it in no way. Tony is probably not gonna show up. Yeah, we wish he would too. Love that guy. Taking it personal when someone likes something you hate or hates something you love in entertainment is understandable when young. But as you get older, trust me, there will be little that will make you feel more embarrassed about yourself than cruel things you said on someone's Facebook page about DC versus Marvel or whatever at 3 in the morning. At least hopefully. Write. Create. Do your own thing. And if you don't have the time, find the time. Try out the shows you haven't given a shot to yet on our network, like Thumbtacks and Screwjobs, Somebody Likes It, or Deliberations of Doom. We think you'll be pleasantly surprised. But seriously, trust me on the subscription.